I said I've got, you know, I've got, I don't know, probably more than 100 microcassette interviews going back to the late 80s. Um, people who are dead, Burroughs, Ginsburg, people who are, you know, I've got Art Spiegelman, I've got, um, I can't even remember, I've got Vincent Bugliosi, um, hours and hours with Bugliosi when he did his Kennedy assassination book, talking about that and Manson and stuff. And it's really interesting stuff, but I've got to get it digitized before those tapes fall apart. Yeah, like now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, now would be a good time to yeah, get started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, how many tapes do you think you have? In the probably a probably hundred. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, your, that, that's your Christmas break, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right, actually. That's a good, that's a, that's, that, 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 that is my Christmas break project. All right, well, now I know what I'm going to do over the winter. So yeah, I, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I, I've been looking into, um, I can do it with, with big cassettes, like I could do it myself, but I don't have a micro, right. micro cassette to like MP3 or something. So, yeah. so I'll figure that out. But yeah, I got a drawer, a drawer, a desk drawer full of them. Yeah. Yeah. At least you have them still. All right. Now we'll actually do the intro to the show. Um, you're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have David Ulin, his book, The U- Art. Ulin? Yeah. Did I fuck that up? Yeah, okay. Today. <laughs> I've been calling you the wrong name for how many years? You and every like half people, you know, okay. it's, people either spell it wrong or they pronounce it wrong. Okay. So you're right. you're in good company. Okay. <laughs> Ulin, Ulin. Ulin. David Ulin. Oh man, I'm a dick. This is how we start. This is why we start. Like no, you're good. You're good. This is all fine. Good. All right. Uh, the, I'm comfortable if I'm correcting the interviewer. So. <laughs> I'm David Eulen. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. You pronounced your last name wrong. Can you do that again? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm David Eulen. I'm, I'm David Eulen, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Perfect. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. The um, the the lost art of reading is. Uh, recently reissued as well as I, I love the title of the book Sidewalking because I want to say the the definitive um, the definitive history of Jesus and the Mary Chain yeah, exactly you know although, is that a nod to that no actually it's not um, I mean I know their music but I'm not a huge fan of theirs I mean I like certain songs and to be honest I had never heard that song um, until after the book came out and I was talking I can't remember who now but I went to somebody's class to talk about the book and they played as like an intro music they played that song and I was like oh what is this really? <laughs> yeah and they th- they said I, I thought that was why you named it no what and the way that book got named was originally it was called the working title was Miracle Mile because so much of it takes right. place over there but I never really thought I, mean, I, I liked that title but it wasn't you know I know I mean I you know I know the film and I sort of wanted something but I didn't I'm terrible at titles and um, when I turned the book in, that became a thing. The editor, my editor, really didn't like the title, and we went back and forth to try and figure out what, what would be a title. And um, I, so we sort of just started throwing word stuff around. You know, Finally, my agent and I started doing it, too. We started throwing words around, and she said, what do you want to... I was like, something with sidewalks. And then I actually ended up going on dictionary.com and just looking for sort of... Um, I don't know, not necessarily even synonyms, but words that kind of had sidewalk in them. And one was this word sidewalking, which is Canadian slang 
for essentially for a, a, a merchant busking, right? A merchant who's out on his sidewalk kind of bringing customers into the store is called sidewalking. And I thought given that part of the book dealt with, with um, sort of the street as a kind of um, social space, that it actually seemed kind of perfect. So that became the title of the book. I like that a lot. Yeah, it was weird. It was one of those weird serendipitous things. Yeah. And then once that title was there, I was like, oh, why did I ever think Miracle Mile was the title? This is, this is absolutely the title. Especially for a book about walking in L.A. Because yeah. the thing about walking in L.A. for me is the sidewalks are intimidating because there's not a lot of people on them most of the time. And that freaks me out as coming from San Francisco where you're bumping people left and right. Totally. Right. And I'm from New York and I lived in San Francisco and yeah. Boston and Philadelphia. So all those cities are like that. So when I first came here, um, walking is just part of my urban vernacular but it's weird and it was really weird at night too because there was nobody on the street at night and I never felt scared walking on the street in my life I didn't feel exactly scared but I was kind of apprehensive not because I was worried about what might happen but the fact that if something did happen there was nobody around to like to, that I could you know I, whatever if I not even if I, if I got into a bad situation with another person but like if I fell or something you know like there was nobody around I would just be out there you know so that was weird and so I think you know a large part of my acclimation to the city had to do with kind of learning how to navigate the streetscape yeah because I just I, <laughs> I I was just a buffoon when I came down here and I walked I was walking down um, Fra Franklin Village Oh, you know, uh, so that's kind of a crowded sidewalk yeah. but you get, you get the bookstore and where, isn't that like the bourgeois pig is you know yeah, yeah so yeah that. It can get crowded, and people weren't getting out of my way, so I was kind of walking through them when I first came down here. And I was just like, God, these people are assholes. And then I was just like, at the end of the block, I went, I'm the asshole, because that's not every block. That's just that block. Yeah, they don't yeah. Know. yeah exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's interesting, that whole thing. I mean, that's been one of the things that's been fascinating about living here over the last 25 years or so, is kind of watching that, that urban language kind of grow up, you know? Uh -huh. It's cool. Yeah. And, it, and then I started to go, okay, I have to embrace this like I'm in a European city and just go, let me know, let, I need to understand what the culture is and when I shouldn't be a dick. That's Well, and I think that's actually a pretty useful skill for living anyway, yeah, yeah. you know, it's like I try to kind of move through the world that way. I need to actually I to get that tattooed you know, on my arm or something. I need to move through the culture and learn when I'm being a dick. I think it's right. really useful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And um and then uh, I I do want to uh, we'll get we we won't stay on the book subjects the whole time we just talk shit, but um the the lost art of reading what what is um I want to ask you about the art of reading okay. what what is the definition of the art of reading for you, for me so I think of reading as an active like an act an action right it's active and so um, it doesn't just wash over you you have to kind of participate in it. And so for me, and this is just my own version of it, I mean, I think everybody has their own way of interacting with it. So for me, it's a matter of reading consciously, like being aware, it depends on, depending differently in different books. You know, sometimes I'm reading and I'm just reading to see what the writer's doing with language. Sometimes I'm reading to see what, where the story is or where the story is going. Sometimes, you know, if I'm reading a certain kind of nonfiction, I'm reading to see what the ideas are, or I might even be having an argument with the writer, you know, if they're writing, right? I might be not agreeing with them. And so... But I think because I think that reading and writing is a collaboration and that, you know, we as writers, as a writer, you put down your half of the process in the book. 
the book doesn't come to life until someone opens it and starts reading it, right? I was just, um, I've been teaching uh, Tim O'Brien's book, The Things They Carried, and there's a, a line in the last story in that book where he's remembering someone he knew, not even from the war, but someone he knew who died, and he has a dream about her, and he asks her, she comes back, and he says, what's being, what's death like and she says it's like being in a book that someone hasn't op- isn't opening right it's like being a character in a book that no one's opening I love that idea I mean I, I'm not sure that I think that's what death is like I sort of kind of hope that's what death is like <laughs> but um, but I kind of love that idea because it roots us with it, it pulls us into this concept that you know you got to read the book to bring it to life otherwise it's just sitting on a shelf and so I think that the notion of reading as a participatory act makes it a kind of art you learn more about how that works for you as a reader and how you want to do that the more you read Um, and you are kind of performing the score of the text in a certain way right Um, so I like thinking about it that way because it reminds me I mean as a writer too it reminds me that I am just one voice in the conversation and that the other voice the receiving voice is as important as my voice that's intriguing um I like I like the I, I didn't even think about this, but like even as we read a book, when do we put it down on what page? And that's like that's almost we're giving we're giving it its own beats uh, that no one else is giving it. Exactly, and different people. So I don't I I mean I will if I have to, but I would prefer always never to stop in the middle of a chapter, right? Um, and I have other things that I may or may not do depending. So you know when I did the first edition of Lost Art of Reading. Um, one of the things I did partly as a challenge to myself and partly to kind of play with that expectation of readers was to write it with no chapters. So the, the you know, the main body of the book is just one long, like 150 page essay. Um, partly I did that because I wanted to see actually as a writer, if I could pull that off, right. You know, if I could write a 150 page essay with no breaks and not have it collapse under its own weight. Part of the reason I did that was because I knew that if it were a book that I had picked up, I kind of like books like that. Um, where there's no break point and you're kind of, you know, if you're a reader like I am, you don't want to stop in, a, in the middle of a chapter, then you're in, you're stuck, you're in, you know, for however long it takes you to get through that book. And I wanted that kind of centrifugal force in a certain way. Um, but I, so I, so I thought about that in terms of the structure of the book and how that reflected it. Cause I, I hate stopping in the middle of a chapter, you know, like I'm, or, or in the middle of, if I'm reading a short story or an essay, like stopping in the middle of a, of a short piece of writing. Like I, I, you know, I look for the natural break point and I try to read to that natural break point because it just feels unnatural otherwise to me. Yeah. You're better than me. I, I get it to where I'm just like, oh, God, I'm falling asleep. Well, then <laughs> too. <laughs> this is all an ideal. You know, it's not an actuality always, but, right. but I aspire to that. <laughs> exactly. The, um, yeah, it's, it's uh, I, you know, I just saw this quote, and it might be this huge, amazing quote that I just figured out. Um, that I found out on my own. Um, it said, uh, reading is uh, breathing in, writing is breathing out. Have you heard anything like that? No, but that's a really, that's, okay, that's so the that's dynamic, right? Me. No, 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 but that's exactly it, right? That's the dynamic, I think. And I think, you know, so I think about that a lot. I think I started thinking about that because I spent so much time writing about books that I was really aware of that kind of writing as a, that, I mean, as a public conversation, right? I mean, you know, the best writing about books, the best reviewing or even interviewing or whatever are, um, you know, the, the person who's doing that writing is, is kind of 
taking the book in and telling us something about it, but then there are really also, you know, we're reading it for that writer's voice, right? For the, the voice of the reviewer, the voice of the interviewer. So through the course of doing that for a long time, I started to think about how that worked, and then I kind of felt it. It's, then it kind of crossed over into my own work. Speaking of being the interview and the interviewer, how is it being interviewed? Because you've probably done a lot more interviews than, because for me it's weird. I, I, like have, I like being on this side of the mic. I have a, and then when I'm on the other side, I kind of freak out. How is it for you? It depends on the kind of interview. Like this kind of interview, I like because it's more of a conversation and I like the idea that I'm not in control of it. So I can just respond. Like I don't have to map it out. I can just kind of respond to the. I know. (laughs) I mostly don't either because I also want the. Even as an interviewer, I want the conversation to be a conversation. Um, But if like you were interviewing me for a a news story, like, you know, when I was. when I was editing the book section at the Times and it was, you know, all paper was going through all that turmoil and they were shrinking the section and people were getting laid off and whatever. Reporters would call me and I would, I'm the, in that kind of interview, I'm the worst interview because I've done so much of it. I'm always aware of, I'm really careful, yeah. right? So I'm always aware of like not saying too much or I will always say like, okay, this is off the record, yeah, yeah. right? You know, so, you know, so for that kind of thing, I'm a terrible interview. But for this, you know, and I'd rather be the interviewer in that situation. For this, I think it's, it's two different things. Like, I, I just like talking about stuff. So I like it when I'm the interviewer, um, but I also like, like letting someone else drive the bus, yeah. you know? Well, what's, it, what's intriguing about um, being, being at the uh, L.A. Times and um, being the books editor is you're also responsible kind of for the LA Times. There's more, there's way more pressure on that. Well, it, yeah, and that was one of the things that I learned. I didn't realize that when I got into that job, but it is, right? It's not your publication, it's yeah. their publication. You're sort of running that section for them. Right. But yeah, you are, you know, you're part of that bigger entity, and that bigger entity and you may not agree. Like when they were doing all those changes at the book section, um, you know, they were doing them over my strenuous objections, right. but I also couldn't, you know, I could, there was only so much I could say publicly about what that process was, you know? It's almost like when you, when you work on a film and the stuff you can't say about how shitty it was for, with these certain pieces of assholes on set and you're, yeah. cause you're just like, the film is made, go enjoy it. No, totally. I mean, my, you know, I've, I've many friends of mine work on films from either, you know, in front of or behind the camera and every single one of them has had some moment where you know they they're like well privately but i can't say that out in the world you know because you don't want to ruin the experience because it's so collaborative so you don't want to ruin you know maybe a great performance because of tainting it for something well yeah that and also i found you know for me often even if i disagreed with people not always but even if i disagreed with people they were often people i respected and i respected their integrity even if we didn't see eye to eye and so again going back to what we were talking about the being like I didn't want to be a dick you know <laughs> and that's also being a good journalist too I think there's a there's a there used to be more of an eth- ethics to journalism I believe I, I think there's still an enormous ethics to journalism okay. I think journalists get a really bad rap yeah. um, they do generally and now you know now that we have the prevaricator in chief we uh, you know I, I'm always amazed I'm always I'm not amused I'm always amazed that 
you know, he who I consider to be the true enemy of the people is, is, you know, is talking about journalists as the enemy of the people. I think journalists, by and large, I mean, they're always, you know, they're always sort of um, exceptions in every category. But, you know, the journalists I know, journalists in general, and certainly journalists I know and have worked with are, you know, have some of the highest levels of integrity yeah, yeah. of anybody I've ever met. You know, they're like out there kind of giving up their own time I mean not just their time but I mean they're out there you know working long hours they're underpaid this notion that somehow journalists working journalists anyway are you know are the elites I mean um, right. you know it's like it's like it's you know you break that job down in terms of dollars to, yeah. dollars per hour it's you know it's not it's not a lot yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they you know and they bust their ass yeah yeah no I uh, proudly proudly align um, with journalists and proudly still call myself a journalist oh that's great yeah. What um what was it like when you re- received the uh, the gig of being the uh, books editor at the LA Times? It was a strange situation, only because I had never worked. I mean, I'd never worked in a daily newspaper. I'd written for the paper a lot as a freelancer over a long period of time. I'd worked at an alt weekly um, as an editor. I'd edited some books. I'd written some books. Um, but I never really, actually, I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, I had not had a full-time job, like a single full-time job. You know, I left my house for 40 hours a week kind of job in 15 years, right? The last job I'd had prior to that, I'd worked in a bookstore and then I'd quit that to become a writer. And then I'd sort of done a bunch of gigs. I'd taught, I'd free, I'd, you know, I'd worked at this all weekly, I'd edited, I'd written, but I had, didn't have one like fixed job. So, you know, I applied on a lark. I figured um, I had just about eight or nine, well, is that right? Let me think. Yeah, about eight months before I had published um, my Earthquake book, which was a real killer of a book to work on. I really, you know, I didn't want to write another book. Um, I wasn't sure I ever wanted to write another book, but I certainly didn't want to write another book right away. I didn't really have another project I wanted to do, so I was kind of in this sort of drifting mode. And then that job came open, and I thought, you know, I liked editing. I had run a book section with the editing I'd done it at the LA Reader, at the Los Angeles Reader. It was to I had been their book editor, so I had a sense of how that could work. I'd written for the Times book section a bunch. I figured, what the hell? You know, they're not going to give me the job, but it'll be an interesting experience to see what happens. And um, you know, why not? I'll kick myself if I don't. If my general strategy always has been, I might as well apply for this or submit for this or do whatever. Because if I don't get it, I won't have it. If I don't apply for it, I won't have it. So no difference, right? So what the hell? So I I got in touch with them and said, if I want to apply, what do I do? And they told me. And then it snowballed pretty quickly. So I wrote them, part of the deal was they wanted a section critique, which I wrote them. Um, and then they called about an interview. And, and so within about two or three weeks, it became apparent that they were actually taking my application seriously, whatever that meant. You know, there were a bunch of people. I wasn't the only one. But, uh, you know, and all of a sudden then I had to, I remember saying to my wife, you know, wow, I actually think like there's a chance I might get this job. Right, right. <laughs> we both looked at each other like, what the hell is that about? So and then it just kind of progressed, um, you know, went through the interview process. And um, then there was a long couple months where they weren't sure they were going to be able to hire because it was right at the very beginning of all the really serious financial issues with Tribune. Um, 
And then they called and hired me. And it was, you know, like I said, I had never had a job with health insurance. I had never had a job. Um, I had never had a job that was like not, you know, hourly wage, like a full time, you know, I'd never like, you know. And so it was this whole other world. And and as you say, you go in there, it's a lot different being someone who writes for the paper as a freelancer and then being someone who's sort of representing the paper as the editor of yeah, one yeah. of the sections. So the learning curve once I got in was really, really steep. Yeah. But fortunately, um, we were pretty well set up. The guy who at the time, and for actually the whole time I was there, was deputy editor, who'd been the deputy editor already, he had sort of set it up, he had sort of made a bunch of assignments. So I didn't actually have to start from zero. I had a bunch of stuff in the hopper. I could make my own assignments and fill things in and move stuff around, but it gave me a little bit of space, like a month or two to really kind of get my feet on the ground. And that turned out to be one of the most immensely helpful things um, because I could feel it out a little bit, you know, and I got to try stuff. So I, you know, I edited some stuff for the daily. I wrote, you know, I wrote a daily review to see what that was different. We didn't have really have a web presence at that point. We, we developed that later. Um, but I really got to, like, learn all the pieces of the operation. And then, um, you know, and, and then within a couple months, then I was able to kind of start to actualize some stuff. Um, and then it was great. But it was one of those just weird, I mean, kids, if you're listening out there, go for it. That is my, uh, my, my advice is if there's something you want, go for it. The worst thing that's going to happen is you won't get it. And then you don't have it. But if you don't yeah. go for it, you're not going to have it anyway. And sometimes the world surprises you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, um, what was it like having a, a lifestyle that was a, that was a writer lifestyle going to, and then what was it, did it feel like going into a 40 hour work environment? It felt very, I mean, the first year or so, well, there's a couple of things. First of all, first thing was I wanted, you know, I was coming in from the outside. I had inherited a staff, good staff, but I wanted to, you know, they were, they'd all been there for a long time. So I wanted to, I didn't want them to be doubtful about my ability to, to sort of lead the crew. Right. right. So for the first year I made sure I was always the first person there in the morning, always the last person out at night, you know? Yeah. So I would go in about eight thirty in the morning. Newspaper day doesn't really start till about 10. So I'd get in around 8.30 in the morning, and I'd stick around till about 7, 7.30. I'd get a lot of work done, and that was kind of, it was really interesting because I'd never, I, you know, I had always worked at home, so I'd never had a situation where I would leave work and then I would just go home and then, you know, have dinner, drink or two, watch something on TV, go to sleep, didn't bring my work home with me. So that was kind of interesting. I also really liked, I realized I really liked being in an office building when no one else was there so I liked it either early in the morning liked it best either early in the morning or kind of late like you know after six o'clock um, and after about a year or so I kind of eased up also I was writing so I would write at home if I was writing on if I was working on something I would write at home and then come into the office and you know and also it you know it is a flexible gig in that way so the more settled I got as an editor the more I started writing again there not just for the book section but also magazine stuff um, op-ed whatever and so when I was doing that, <clears throat> you know, often I would stay at home and work like right till noon. And then I would go in, uh, you know, around noon or so and stay there till like seven o'clock, eight o'clock at night. But I loved the idea that even within that structure at that time, we had a big enough staff. So even the section had a big enough staff. So if I wasn't there, you know, if I wasn't there until if I didn't show up until one o'clock because I was working on a story, <clears throat> there'd be like three other editors there. Right. So if something happened. You, you could deal with it. As the paper shrunk 
And this affected me to some extent, but I stopped being book editor at, at a certain point in the middle of this process and became critic, after which I never went to work again. I never went to the office again, oh, okay. or very rarely went to the office, yeah, about, yeah. about a couple times a month. But, but you know, um, as it shrunk, it became harder and harder for an editor to do that. And I always found it, the whole time I was there, I found writing there to be really, really difficult. Yeah. Too many distractions. Yeah, too easy to get pulled in on other stuff where easy to get pulled. people want you know people want to know stuff. Too many too many interruptions. Um, yeah, and too much people like if, especially if you're writing on deadline. Too much people kind of hovering over your desk going, "When is it going to be done?" Whereas if you're home writing, they'll email you to ask where when it's going to be done, but you can ignore those. Emails. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just, yeah, it's my emails at geocities eight six six four two. Yeah, yeah, just hold one. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that was so it was really so balancing all that stuff, especially once I started writing a lot, became really interesting and complicated, and um, and I. Loved Loved writing for the paper, always did, always still do. So there was something really um, fascinating about playing both those roles, about being a writing, about being a writing editor. Yeah, I bet. Um, yeah, I mean, as you what like learning curve wise, did as just being in that position, did it change like the way you wrote, or did it change? You know, did you have? Um, that might not be the right question. Maybe did you did you change how you read things? Maybe is that. Well, that's not even a good question. I think both those questions suck, but you can reply. Well, you, like. you know, I mean, I didn't change because I, I had done so much reviewing and I'd written f- and I'd written for, you know, I mean, you always sort of it's not that you write differently. They're different. Right. So the, you know, daily newspapers, I mean, even now, but then definitely daily newspapers were, you know, clean language zones. Right. Right. Which became which wasn't a particular problem because in my criticism or my journalism anyway, I didn't, I mean, I actually use those words way more in conversation than I do in my writing because I want them to have like a power if I'm going to use them in writing. I don't want to um, dilute the power of it. Um, whereas in spoken conversation, I just use them all the fucking time, right? Exactly, so, yeah. um, but I think that sensibility-wise, Maybe it was because I came in later. I mean, I was in my early 40s when I came in, so I felt like I was pretty comfortable with my sensibility. I felt like they had hired me. Oh, I'll just say one other thing. When I applied, because I didn't think I was necessarily going to get it, I was really straight with them about the critique of the section. I was really straight with them about what I was going to do with it. I wasn't like trying to guess what they wanted, because it never occurred to me they would actually give me the job. And you know, I wish I was smart enough for that to have been my strategy, but it just was luck that then I was like, here's what I'm going to do. And then they gave me the job and I was like, great, now I'm going to do that. (laughs) And they knew it wasn't like, you know, wait a minute, you said you were going to do that and you're now you're doing this. So that turned out to be really useful too. And part of what I wanted to do there was kind of to bring a more, um, alt-media sensibility to the section in some way, both in terms of the writers I wanted to use and the books we were going to cover and the mix and things like that. Um, so they kind of dovetailed in a way. Um, you know, that my sort of pre, pre-times experience with what I wanted to do with the section when I got there. Yeah. So it really wasn't a shift, except in the sense of sometimes, you know, you, there are certain things you can't quote, right? Or I remember once having... Um, there's a novel, I can't remember the name of it, but there was, but one of the, um, there's a plot turning point where a guy sodomizes himself with a sausage. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't? 
Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying, right? <laughs> but, um, and I remember having a ba big back and forth with the copy desk about it. We had a I didn't write the review, but we had a review, um, and the, the review talked about that scene because it was a pivotal scene in the book. And the copy editor said to me, you know, this is going to have to get cut. And I was like, no, it isn't. It can't. Yeah. Um, you know, I was like, there has to be a way for us to frame this that meets, you know, the language or whatever, the so-called decency standards of the newspaper, but also tells the reader what's going on because it's an essential scene in the book and it's an essential scene in the review. And we don't have, like, without that moment, it's not gratuitous at all, right? right? And we worked it out. <clears throat> and so that kind of thing, that was really, that was part of the How learning curve. I can't remember now because it's like 10 years ago. Oh, we, no, we kept it in. I mean, I don't remember the specifics of the language, okay. but, you know, it ended up staying in. Right. I think it was more about what words we chose to describe the activity. Right. Interesting. And but it was but it ended up running. It ended up being in, in there and it was fine. But that was part of that learning curve, too, is how to navigate that territory. Um, what do you do with I mean, this was before I started, but there was a book that came out about a year or two before I started by a professor, I think, at Princeton, a guy named Harry Frankfurt. And the book was called On Bullshit. Right. <clears throat> and I remember saying to them, I mean, this was, you know, I was like, well, if, you know, if this is the rule and it's hard and fast, how do we review that book? Because you can't even quote the title of that book. <laughs> like right. you can't put the info box at the top of the review with the title of that book. So there's got to be a way that we can be flexible to reflect the culture that's outside of the office, but also reflect the institutional standards of, of the, of the paper. And so that was kind of that back and forth. Like I really, like the idea that it wasn't monolithic, but it was humans kind of <clears throat> talking to one another and trying to figure out how to navigate. Yeah, that's cool. Um, back to uh, back to your love of books. When when, when was it that you uh, that you realized that books were just had to be a part of your life? The moment I kind of I think the moment I knew what they were. Really? Um, yeah, I mean I I I. I um, I mean, I grew up in a house full of books. My father's a big reader, still is, he's still around. Um, so I grew up in a house with like hundreds and hundreds of books all over the place. And I loved reading from the moment I learned how to do it. I mean, I should, I don't, I mean, I sort of actually remember learning how to read, but I remember, but like I was a real, I was a reader right away. Like once, because oh, yeah. I, I mean, why are we all readers, right? Because my grandmother once yelled at me when I was like 12 or 13. I was at some family event and I was reading at the table and, my, and I was an obnoxious teenager. My grandmother said, you know, why don't you put the book down and spend time with your family at the table? And I looked at her and I was like, if they were as interesting as the people in the book, I'd be happy to do that, <laughs> you know. But, you know, so like all of us, I was like, the, you know, I, I was drawn to those stories and those characters because they were really interesting, way more interesting than most of the people I was being, wow. you know, encountering. Um, and also they were weird in ways that like I discovered fellow weirdos in those yes. in all those books, you know, like I, you know, I would read, um, you know, like I remember when I was like 11 or 12 or something, whenever I discovered Kurt Vonnegut as an example, you know, but I was like, all right, this guy's really weird in a way that is really interesting. You know, like, I don't know anybody who was weird like this. I want to spend time with that guy. Yeah. So there's something, um, so that, you know, so early, but I think it was also just all those, having all those books and my father, and this goes back to Vonnegut at 11 or 12, had a, 
he wouldn't have articulated it this way, but basically he had an open shelf policy. So we could just take in like any books, like no books were restricted, even if they were like beyond you or too graphic or, you know, any of that. Um, so I felt like it was this kind of world of possibility and I was really, really drawn to it. And then once I realized also pretty early that somebody's job was to make those books, I was like, that's it. That's what I want to do. That's cool. Yeah, because I was like, what better thing to do than, like, tell stories and make books? I still think that's true. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I mean, personally, they, personally, literature saved my life. Like, yeah. like literally. Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so now it's my religion. <laughs> no, I mean, it's as much as, it's as, I mean, I've, I, I think that's right. It's as close to faith as I get, yeah. right? It's yeah. as close to faith as I get. And writing and reading has saved my life many times in many ways and you know i in some ways you know that yeah it's that it's it's the through line always has been yeah what was it like when you first when you get to a point where you're reporting on books and you get to interview your your early heroes like one what was what was one of the first heroes where you're like holy shit i got to interview this guy and i've been reading him since well the first one who wasn't i mean who was a current hero but wasn't like an old time hero the first big interview i'm trying i want to just make sure this is true before i tell you this yeah it is actually so the first big interview i ever did was with tc boyle um and this was in 1989 i was still living in new york and i had just kind of started doing this and and he had just published what did he just publish? He had just published If the River Was Whiskey. So that was his sixth book. So it's early. I mean, it's, you know, pretty early in his career. Now he's got like 30 books out. But he was, <clears throat> so he was, uh, I had discovered him in college. Um, Water Music and Descent of Man and Budding Prospects. Those three books were out when I discovered him. And then I sort of followed him from there. And I loved him because he was so much the opposite of, I'm not that, you know, that I didn't love that other stuff, but he was so much the opposite of everything else I'd been reading, right? He was so much the opposite of the Beats uh, and the avant-gardists and like the absurd writers and, um, you know, the the existentialists and all that stuff who I loved, but like were really serious. He was definitely at that point, um, early 80s, it was, you know, the beginning of American minimalism. I loved those guys, those writers too, Joy Williams, Carver, Toby Wolfe. but that was also serious in a way. And Boyle was just like a blast. You know, he reminded me of like um, of Barth and um, Heller and those guys who I had loved when I was, you know, 14, 15, 16. Um, because there was like the joy of storytelling and the humor and the kind of outrageousness of it. Um, and he packed everything in and his language was like watching fireworks you know so um, so he was a new fascination I don't like I said I only had been reading him for about six five or six years but I loved his work and so when I got the chance to interview him and I had not done any interviews before or maybe one or two small ones it was you know I, I was sort of pinching myself like oh my god I'm in a room with this guy I of course had read everything he was immensely gracious and let me just ask him every stupid question I could about whatever the hell it was like I think we were there for like two hours and and there's always a little bit of that awe in some way. I mean, there are others, you know, I mean, I did end up getting to interview pretty much um, everyone who was still walking or most of the people who were still walking. So Didion, um, Burroughs, all, almost all of the beats. Actually, most of them were still alive when I started in. So Burroughs, Ginsburg, Corso, those guys. Um, 
Roth and Cynthia Ozick and then later Claudia Rankin and you know so um, but there have only there have been a couple where um, the first time I interviewed Roth as an example because I'd been re- I'd read him since I you know I mean I read Portnoy's Complaint when I was like 13 which is the perfect age to read Portnoy's Complaint I think but um, you know I, I remember walking into the room and going oh my god you know that's Philip Roth you know yeah. or um, you know, Didion was the same because Didion was and remains hugely transformative to me as a writer. And so the first time I met and interviewed her, which was much later, I was at the Times. I had that same, like, um, I hope I can talk to you, yeah. you know. <laughs> I hope I don't just sit here like, oh, blah, 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 blah. and then the other one that was really other thing, the other category that was really interesting was I started interviewing musicians <clears throat> because mostly through the filter of books or things that they had done. But I ended up interviewing tons of musicians who I loved as musicians. I don't know whether I loved them as people or not, but, you know, like, so, you know, starting with, I think the first one I interviewed was Steve Jones when he was doing Jonesy's Jukebox. You know, I mean, whatever. He was a local hero on the one hand, but he was also like the guy who played that riff on Pretty Vacant, you know? I was like, okay. Um, And then I interviewed, you know, David Byrne and I interviewed Yoko Ono. That was a really cool, it was a terrible interview. Uh She gave me nothing, but I was like, I'm talking to Yoko Ono, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, totally. I was going to ask you about that, about the who you know, um, like I got to do an article on Jonesy's on Jonesy in the Times about, about a couple years ago, which was a lot of fun. A lot of fun, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I ended up, yeah, I interviewed him for a piece in the Times. It ended up not going because somebody else, it turned out, had been assigned to do another piece. And oh. but, but I still got to, you know, I got to sit in when he was doing the show, yeah. right? I got to sit in the studio with him for a couple of for a couple of days, and yeah. you know, hang out with him, and it was totally cool. Yeah. I know that blew my mind. Just like sitting, I was right when I right when I got into the studio. They just had a new board up, and I, you know I come from radio, so right away I went straight to the engineer, and I'm like, "Holy shit, what is this board?" And then he's geeking out with me. He's like, "We just got it, and it does this, this, and this." And they they didn't even know I was like there to interview Jonesy. They just thought I worked. <laughs> yeah, I mean that was cool. I loved that stuff. I mean I was you know I love I love radio, and I was always yeah. you know and I'm an, I was a long time kind of amateur musician, rock and roller. So the idea of like being in a studio of any sort with like a real musician I was like this is great and then getting paid to do it yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the uh, that's the the icing on the cake have you um, has there been you anyone that you were, were so excited to meet that just utterly disappointed you on so many levels there have been a, <clears throat> I don't know about disappointed me on so many levels there have been you know the one who I always talk about the two who I talk about the most in this regard one of whom I really liked the other one I didn't know well enough to like. But, you know, David Foster Wallace, who I knew a little bit, not well, but a little bit personally, and I liked him. Uh, but I interviewed him once, and I interviewed him once on stage, and he didn't, clearly didn't want to be there. Um, and he was really difficult. Um, and, I, and I got it, right? There's, I, he was, there, there's this interesting category, I think, and I'm sure you've experienced it, where, like, some people, you turn on the mic and they switch into, like, their professional interview subject yeah, mode, yeah, yeah. and then there are these other people, Wallace was one of them, who, you know, bring their, whoever they are that day, that's who they bring to the interview. And he was clearly having trouble, um, this was 2004 when Oblivion came out, he was clearly having trouble he had done I don't think he wanted to do the tour at all and he had done it I guess he I don't know whether he'd been pressured into it or he was doing gigs as favors to people or whatever but um, 
He didn't want to be there. He was great up until the moment we got on stage. He was not an asshole, but just sort of like reluctant for the 45 minutes we were on stage. And then we got off and he was great again. (laughs) So that was one. The other one. Do do you think think maybe that was a... um the, a social anxiety thing that may have happened? I've come to think that because, yeah. you know, um, I didn't real, I didn't know at the time because he had kept it under wraps that he was, you know, suffering from depression. He was not, in, you know, he was on medication. So I've come to think that was part yeah, of it. Yeah. Um, and the other one was Burroughs, who was, is a complicated hero for me because I love his... I love his books. I love his language. I love sort of his formal innovations. Um, I love his cultural iconoclasm. I love his paranoia, political and social paranoia, and his, you know, desire to blow it up. Um, But I have a lot of problems with a lot of things about him. His misogyny, um, you know, his sort of love of um, his pederasty, maybe. Um, You know, those... but. So I always sort of, but, you know, but I kind of, I was kind of in awe of him as a, as an artist in terms of just sort of what he did with language and almost kind of the purity of his decadence in a certain sense. Um, I've always, you know, particularly when I was younger, but still, I always was drawn to, like, I was always drawn to extremists. Like, if you're going to do it, be as extreme as, you know, like, don't go half-assed. If you're going to be a complete antisocial extremist, be a total antisocial extremist. Don't just play at it, you know? Um, And I really, really wanted to interview him. I'd read everything. I'd been reading him for years at that point. Um, And so I ended up getting a gig to go. This was about a year and a half before he died. I went to Lawrence for the weekend and spent the weekend with him. And the idea was that we would, I, I, they put me up in a hotel, magazine I was writing for. Um, I got there Friday afternoon. I, the idea was I would come over Friday afternoon, we would hang out, get to know each other, have dinner. He was, at that point he was 82 and he, you know, he went to bed at like eight o'clock. Um, and then Saturday we would get together and do the formal interview, whatever that was. And then I would go home on Sunday. So I get there, I get picked up, you know, I check in the hotel. I get there, I check in the hotel, I get called his guy. I get picked up, go to the house, and Burroughs couldn't care less. I mean, you know, why would he, right? Another acolyte, come to visit, you know, he's like enough already. It's 1996. Um, I should also say parenthetically that preparing that interview was really difficult because I didn't want to ask him questions he'd been asked a million times. And like with a guy like that who's been interviewed all that much and you've read those interviews, like what questions are they, you know? So that was a challenge. I decided I was going to ask him mostly about old age and and the proximity of death. I love that angle, yeah. It was, and he actually kind of liked it too, I will say. So that was sort of, you know, worked. You know, like I wasn't going to ask him about like, Kerouac. I mean, like, whatever. If I wanted to know about that, I could just read any of 300 other interviews that existed. So, but it was clear he just didn't care, right? He wasn't unpleasant. He was just completely like, whatever, you know, and there was no spark of connection. We talked a bit. Um, At a certain point, he was, his drink of choice, I don't know if that was forever, but at that time, his drink of choice was vodka and Coke. Um, And he started at 3.30. And so... I got there and 
they were like, do you want a drink? And I said, yeah, but I don't really, I don't really drink vodka. And so what do you want? And I said, well, you know, scotch, but you don't have it. So um, his James Grauerholz, who became his literary executor, who was the guy on the ground, said, I'll go get you some scotch. And I was like, no, really, please don't go to any trouble. And he said, no, it's fine. So as he was about to leave, Burroughs wrote something down on a yellow legal pad and said, James, James. And Grauerholz came over and looked at the note and said, I think that would be a fine idea. And then left and Burroughs flipped the notebook over and disappeared into the back or flipped the pad I'm sorry over and disappeared into the back of the house so being the good journalist that I was as soon as he was gone I walked over there and flipped the pad over to see what he had written and he had written would it be all right to bring out a joint so two things I want to say about this one is that William Burroughs the grand master the guy who like one of the key people who actually got me turned on to the idea of doing drugs when I was a teenager, smoked the worst fucking ragweed you've ever smoked. So there was something kind of great. I really kind of liked that idea in some ways. Um, but he didn't, you know, he didn't really care. We were there. He was perfectly happy to kind of talk to me. But And then at a certain point, he said to me, um, let's do the interview now. And I said, oh, I thought we were going to do the interview tomorrow. I didn't bring my, my, my tape recorder. And he goes, you got your memory. Um, so I was like, yeah, that's true, but you know, whatever. And so he was not, it wasn't, I don't know how to put it. He wasn't exactly resistant, but he just like was completely indifferent, I yeah. think. And so that was tough in terms of trying to get him engaged in a conversation. And also because I was there, like I spent all day, you know, I spent a few hours with him on Friday and then spent all day Saturday, you know, from about, uh, noon on, you know, several hours, um, it was complicated. There were these long passages of sort of silence. Yeah. Um, but it was fascinating. Yeah. But difficult. Yeah. I, I mean, at that point, he's probably got the same questions for 30 years. Yeah. He's just, it's, that's got, that, that would scare me to death. Oh, me too, right? It scared me as an interviewer. I'm sure it scared him in some way. It's like, why am I doing this again? It's right. not, you know, what's the point? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I, like I said, I asked him about death. I asked him, we, I can't, and I, you know, I, that's something else. That's one of the, that's one of the tapes. Um, that you gotta, yeah. Yeah. This Christmas. Yeah, this Christmas. <laughs> your, your family may be mad about this, but you're not showing up for anything because I, I will be disgusted if it's 2019 and you don't have. <laughs> no, it's fine. I'm looking for an excuse. So, uh, but it's, uh, yeah, so we, we talked a lot. We talked about writing and we talked about kind of, um, he was at that point also, had mostly given up writing and had moved into doing painting so we talked about that all kind of that was interesting because if you you know like early on he was talking about rub out the word and language is a virus and that kind of stuff and so this idea that finally he had kind of moved beyond language or something into a purely sort of visual landscape and the paintings were very abstract um, and impressionistic that was fascinating to me and almost kind of um Rorschatzy in a way, right? Like, you know, he would just sort of put this stuff on the paint, on the, he was using, I think, particle board. He would put this stuff on the board and then he would look at it to see what kind of shapes emerge. So I talked to him a lot about the painting, which no one had talked to him about. Um, and then, like I said, I talked to him about aging and, and death, and which I was curious about, but also he was staring <laughs> in the face. And so I think after a while, I wouldn't say he actually warmed up, but when he realized I was, I think I said to him at one point, I haven't, you know, I'm not going to ask you about like 
Jack and Alan and right, like right. you know like whatever I, I, can, I can read a book for that like I want to talk to you about other stuff um, and then I think once he found out that I was actually serious about that and that I didn't want to be there as a fanboy exactly but also, but as someone who wanted to have a conversation with him um, as I said he didn't grow effusive exactly but he participated yeah yeah <laughs> so. and now do you think the reason why he had bad weed because it was because of his location in the middle of America? I've always assumed that. I have this. I have this fantasy of him. He lived in Lawrence, Kansas. Right. Um, I, I've have. I have. No, I doubt. I mean, whatever. I don't know if this is true. I guess statute of limitations have run out, so it doesn't matter. But, <laughs> I, you know, I always um, had this fantasy of him buying weed from like a high school kid at Lawrence High. <laughs> <laughs> and it'd be so awesome if that kid did not know that he was selling to Burroughs. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But yeah, I think at that time it was the location, right? I yeah. must have been the location. Yeah. I mean, I almost, you know, I almost was like, man, if I'd known we were going to do this, I could have brought you some good weed from California. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, oh, it's such a trip how, because weed back then was, was a different, uh, different animal. Yeah, completely. It was hard, you know, it was hard to get. And, um, and you got what was, you, you know, whatever was there was what your option was. And I, I have to imagine being in the middle of like, I mean, Lawrence was a college town, so they must have had something going on. But, you know, I have to imagine being sort of in the middle of Kansas it wasn't, um, it couldn't have been that easy to come by. Right. Yeah, and then now it's just, I, I just, it's, it intrigues me so much. I wish it was legalized long ago, long ago and decriminalized so long ago. It's just, it's yeah. nuts. Yeah, I mean, I've, for a long time, um, probably all the way back, have been, I think all of it should be legal. Yeah. I mean, not just for, you know, indulgence's sake, but I think then, you know, legalize it, tax it, raise revenue. I mean, just like we're doing now in California with, with legal. Um, fund rehab programs and education programs and treat serious addiction. You know, I would legalize hard drugs and then like England and treat addiction as a disease instead of a, instead of a criminal act, you know? Exactly. I mean, I just don't see, I don't, I mean, whatever, that's a whole other sub series of conversations, but that kind of puritanical perspective on it makes absolutely no sense. And then, and then if it is legalized, it, it's not, there's not this glamour to it that it's exactly. that, it pulls it away, right? It removes it from, it removes criminality from right. the equation. Um, so that, you know, so all the associated criminality that's involved, including violent crime, to right. protect it disappears. Yeah. And, um, and it's regulated, so you don't have, you know, it's, it's hard. I, I'm assu- in, in my fantasy of sort of legal drug utopia, right? You know, it's, you don't, you know, no more hot shots, no more, you know, like people are not um, shooting Drano or whatever it is. You know, it's like, it's regulated. I mean, there are values. That's a value to government regulation, I would, I would suggest, you know. And at the same time, when you're a kid growing up and you're like, oh yeah, my mom's on heroin and boy, is she boring. (laughs) Right, exactly. The narrative of it would change. It's not all train spotting the film kind of thing. No, and I mean, it's like, I mean, it's, you know, I never did it. Um, thankfully, but I knew people who did, and you know, if you were around, I mean, you know, if you're around pe- being around people on heroin is they are the most boring people. Yeah, uh, you know, they're just sitting there like staring. You know, yeah. it's like great. Let's that's so fun. Yeah. Let's do that. <laughs> that's that's my thing with cocaine. I've only tried it a few times. The, the first time was like in my 40s. So um, 
but I was just like, why would I ever want to do this? Yeah. And why would you? And I didn't want to be around people who talked about themselves. For hours. I know. I was always like, you know, okay, a drug to make me more stressed out. That's <laughs> yeah, just yeah. the wrong drug. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then it costs a lot of money. And then I got to drink more because then it's just like. Yeah. yeah, no, no, no. I, I completely agree. But I do think like it does it deglamor it or deglamorizes it if that's a word. It you know strips yeah. away that kind of mystique of it, right. um, and it strips away the ancillary risk of getting it, regulating it, and all that, and um, and strips away the criminality. And I think that's the biggest for me that's the biggest aspect from having known you know plenty of people who've gone through um addiction issues drugs alcohol whatever um stripping away the stigma is the most essential part and then what i don't know a lot about this but what i find interesting is the actual uh, routine of copying drugs is kind of the high unto itself so if that was taken away does that make sense? I don't, you know, that's interesting. I don't, I mean, as far as that goes, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it was never, I mean, you know, before when I was in college and stuff, you know, even with weed, it was never, that was always my least favorite part of the, oh, of yeah, the yeah. dynamic. So, But weed's, weed's paranoid, weed makes you paranoid, which is great. Everyone should be paranoid. <laughs> but I don't, you know, I don't know. I mean, that's, that could be, I guess, uh, but I wonder, I don't know. I don't know. I don't either. I'm, it's it's, it's two ignorant fellas discussing. That could be a good. That's a good podcast. <laughs> two ignorant fellas. Welcome to two ignorant fellas. <laughs> We're going to talk about a bunch of stuff we know nothing about. <laughs> exactly. So, what's it like being pregnant? It's it's you know your hormones go crazy. Especially in the second trimester. Yeah. No, I actually, I mean, the only thing I know about my, you know, my wife hated being pregnant. So I, and yeah. it did not look, and none of it looked fun. Yeah. I mean, you know, I know people who really loved it. She did not love it. Yeah. And, um, it looked really hot and uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and as the worried, um, well, as the worried husband, were you, were you on duty to get the, the, you know, the. Sir, did she have like cravings or certain things that you she was pretty low maintenance the only thing she said which she was absolutely right about one point early on I think right after we found out that she was pregnant I said to her we're pregnant and she hit me uh, and said never say we're pregnant again unless you're carrying the baby you're not pregnant I was like yeah that's an excellent point and I've never you know I've, I've always I've been aware of that constantly ever yeah. since oh yeah yeah <laughs> good call um Back to the book and your son. Uh, so I liked how you talked about how Noah was, um, he, he had no interest in books, I guess. Yeah, particularly. Really? Uh, I, I, now, now, one, do you feel like a failed father on every level for that? No, actually, you know, it was, what it, it's really liberating. I was talking to someone about this recently. Like, I don't, um, first of all, I don't judge my own, my, my failings as a parent have, which are a legion, have absolutely nothing to do with whether my kids read or not. There are a whole bunch of other things that I failed at big time, but, um, they're their own people. Like I always have felt, you know, maybe because my parents, I was raised not exact, not entirely, but definitely I was raised by people who in, to some extent saw me as an extension of them. You know, like if I, did something that they didn't approve of it reflected badly on them I never felt that way about I've never felt that way about either of my kids they're yeah. their own people they get to decide for themselves what they want um, but the thing that was interesting with Noah um, not reading 
was he taught me something, which was that you don't have to, right? Yeah. That you can be an engaged, intelligent, informed person, you know, know a bunch of stuff about a bunch of different stuff, um, even if your filter isn't text. Um, so that was really cool and interesting and eye-opening in some way. He's a visual artist. He's a lighting designer, so he's a visual artist. He thinks visually and takes in most of his information that way. His brain's just wired that way. So it taught me something about respecting other ways of, of gathering and processing information. Um, but it was interesting because everybody always expected it, right? Because he's like the kid who, you know, he's my kid. We Growing up this house, thousands and thousands of books, all of that kind of stuff. And he just never, he read some stuff. I mean, he's, he's a news junkie, so he reads a lot of that stuff. But he never, you know, like um, novels, things like that. That wasn't the way he was going to um, process story, right? So that was really interesting. And, and, and also, secondarily, I did think, as I talk about in the book, that he wasn't wrong exactly in regard to the idea that literature wasn't the or books or writing what weren't the um we had a problem with younger readers right we weren't um there were too much else going on and too many other ways for them to get information or entertainment or narrative um or empathy and so it wasn't the prime force i mean he actually one of the things he taught me was that i was take i took it for granted that it was the that it was that books were the central mechanism when in fact they were just the central mechanism for me and like the people I knew but and it made me realize um, that you know when I was in high school most of my friends were not great readers I mean they weren't you know they were most of my friends didn't define themselves by reading you know I was the nerd who I had a couple of reading writing buddies who we would like talk to talk about but for the most part you know I was the one who was like lying on the couch on Saturday afternoon reading a book and I'd catch up with them later they were doing some other stuff you know um, and so I also think like one, I think we have this myth that there was once a golden age of reading that, you know, literature was a defining art form for the culture. I think it was more of that than it is now. But I also don't think there was ever really that golden age. I think that, you know, there were always readers and people who didn't read. And, you know, growing up, my father was, as I was saying, was a big reader. My mother was not. You know, she reads more now, but she was not a huge reader when I was a kid. I was a big reader. My brother, not as much reads again reads more now but as a kid it was and I think my I mean my brother might dispute this but I always felt that my brother kind of stayed away from it because it was mine um and I wonder I never have asked Noah about this but I wonder if that was true of him as well what else is intriguing is he he did do a creative pursuit and the the I mean even the art of lighting tells a story that there's so many things like choreographers I a good choreographer I'm, I'm going wow that i that's an amazing story. It's emotionally killing me what you're doing. It's incredible, right? And I think also because he's done um, the actual, you know, he's done it for for drama. He's he actually he's um, done a lot of light, a lot of dance lighting. Um, but he is, you know, he has to read those texts, whatever they are. If he's if he's doing um, theatrical lighting, he's got to read the text of the play. If he's doing um, dance lighting, he's got to essentially read the choreography as a text, and then interpret it and respond to it. You know, so there's all that critical thinking is going on, um, and I'm really interested in the way that that happens in different territories. Right? Um, it's fascinating. I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be one thing. Uh, was your dad totally stoked when you got the LA Times uh, gig? Yeah, they, well, I think they were all just—they were just happy I got a job. 
but yes, they were all they were all really they were happy. <laughs> you call him and he's like, "You finally got health insurance, kid." I got a job. I got a real job with like health insurance. <laughs> like no one ever thought that was gonna happen. <laughs> That's awesome. Were your kids still young enough to get on that health insurance too? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Great. Yeah, my oh, kids were. How old were they? They were young. I mean, when I got that job, he was he was 11 and my daughter was seven. So they were, yeah, they were little. Yeah, yeah. They were little. Yeah. That's funny. Good timing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's useful to have it when they're little. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you know what intrigues me, and um, I, I just saw this as we were talking, because I'm so in my little bubble of my writer friends and what we do that, you know, we forget there's other, th there's other forms of storytelling out there. And I, you know, I, I remembered working on some film stuff where I was just like, wow, you're doing things to my work that I never could have thought of. And then I, all my respect went like way up for actors. And yeah, all absolutely. I mean, it's been useful for me because my wife was an actor for a long time and then a, and a director. Um, like Noah does the lighting stuff. Um, and I teach, so I'm always, you know, I'm around students who... don't necessarily know a lot of what I know, but they know a ton of stuff I don't know. And so I think like one of the things for me has been learning how to listen. You know, I think that's really useful as a writer anyway. Um, but just as a human, just sort of hearing what people have to say. And so like often I'll ask them things, you know, like, what do you guys think about this? Because you're coming at it from a completely different perspective than I am. And I'm really curious to know what your take is. I know what my take is. What's your take? And I'm always interested to see how both, you know, where they align and also where they don't align and why. Like, for instance, I was... Um, Penn has this, now it's called Penn in the Community, but it used to be called Penn in the Classroom where they'd put a writer into a public school classroom for a 10-week residency when, once a week and you'd work with them on creative writing. And I went a few years, I did it a, few, a bunch of times. Once I was at um, Santa Monica High School and it was, and in the course of that, the time I was there, Columbine happened, right? So I went into class that week Columbine was like Tuesday or Wednesday. I was teaching them on Friday. So I went in on Friday and I said, okay, so today you guys are going to teach me. Like, what do you think about this? And we talked about it. And there was this young woman in the class, probably like a sophomore or junior in high school, who was goth, like, you know, white makeup, long, dark hair, black dress, all that kind of stuff. And she'd never spoken the whole class. And she raised her hand and I called on her and she said, have you ever noticed that these school shootings happen in the suburbs and not in cities. And I said, no, you know, I never have noticed that, but now that you mention it, and she said, you know where that is? And I said, no, do you? And she goes, I think so. And I was like, okay, why? And she's like, everyone in this school, everyone in this school hates me. I have no friends in this school. If this was the only school, then maybe I would be alienated in, in that kind of way. But I live in Los Angeles where there are tons of schools and all of us freaks get together outside of school. Like if you run in, if you, you know, if you walk on, if you're like on the promenade on a Friday or Saturday night, you'll see me with all my goth friends from all these other schools. And we got a community, right? Because there's a lot of us. 
Um, so we can be like the freaks in our schools, but also have a place that belongs to us. And if we were in the suburbs, we wouldn't have that. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but it makes a lot of sense to yeah, me. Yeah. <laughs> I love it when kids can open. I think kids don't want to open up to adults because there's, there's uh, you know, what we're dorks as far as they're concerned. Totally. We're losers. <laughs> but man, sometimes we can really get nuggets from them that that we just can't see from their point of view. Yeah, and I've never forgotten that. And like I said, I mean, I was, you know, so all of a, so I'm always interested. And so, and again, but that idea, it's like, you know, I'm, I just want to be reminded. I mean, in almost every way I can, I just want to be reminded that my point of view or my experience is mine. And hopefully I'm trying to make it as non-narrow as possible. But there's all this other stuff out there. There are all these other inputs. There are all these other ideas. There's all these other attitudes. Um, and perceptions, and I want to know what those are, and I want their, you know, so my line is just one, right? And so same with books, I think it's just one sort of, it's one stream, but then there are all these other streams too. Right. Yeah. Oh, oh. and then let's go back to David Foster Wallace. Infinite Jest, yes or no? I've never finished it. <laughs> I've tried twice! I want to kill David, well, he's, but I, I want to kill the book. You know, there's brilliant stuff in it. I always found him to be, you know, personally, I prefer the nonfiction to the fiction. I love his, yeah, yeah. I love his essays. Yeah, I love the, I love the essays. I think they're brilliant um, because I think he's such a self-conscious noticer yeah. that when he gets pulled outside of himself by whatever the circumstance is that he's reporting on, he can kind of push that noticing on, um, on what, he's, what he's seeing. Rather than, you know, there's the, the fiction sometimes gets too sort of, you know, like loopily internal for me. Right. So you did really, you had to read Oblivion, I'm, I assume. I've for read the most, I mean, I've, I've read, I'm trying to think if I've ever finished a novel. I didn't, I read half of Broom of the System. I read about three, four hundred pages of, um, of Infinite Jest. I read The Pale King, but I don't know that I, I don't know what I, I don't know what that, I mean, I know what it is because I read the book but I don't know what it is because it wasn't put together by him. So, um, so I sort of put that in a separate category. But it's, yeah, the two novels I never finished. I read a bunch of the short stories, but not all of them. I've read almost all of the, of the essays. Yeah. And I think the essays are really, um, really interesting. Oh, yeah, I love them. Uh, I was at a cafe a little while ago, and a guy had infinite jest. So I always have to ask. I'm like, I'm like oh, you're actually reading that? You know, I, I want to say, you're reading that shit? But, um, and... The guy tells me, oh, it's my second time through. It's yeah. so good. I, why? I don't get it. I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, it's great American novel myth. And there's, like I said, I mean, I think there's some really great writing in it. But I don't know. It's like I've never read, I've never, I shouldn't say I've never read. I've never finished, I never finished Gravity's Rainbow either, you know. Right. Um, I mean, those big iconic novels, some of them I have, I have finished. But many of them I've read bits and pieces and not, um, and not gotten all the way through. Which reminds me, I have Gravity's Rainbow in my bookshelf, and it's just been sitting there for like 10 years. I just got to bring it out to the mailboxes and have someone else, you know. I, I, I'm the guy that always, I'm always purging books because, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I think it's an interesting question about the, um, I think you can, like, I don't think you have to finish books. Right. You know, I think you can get what you're going to get. You get what you get, you know. Um but I think there's a value in reading even like, you know, if, if that's, if it's valuable to you as a reader, if it's something that's, that's a valuable reading experience, you know, there's something valuable about reading, you know, 50 pages of a novel or reading a couple of short stories from a collection or something like that. Right. Um, and I think that's, 
that was also been a hard, oh, that's been a, I don't know, hard. Yeah, it, that was a hard lesson to learn because I used to feel like obligated to finish books. And then I realized I don't, it doesn't mean that I'm not, it doesn't even mean that I'm not having the experience or having an experience of the book. You know, I'm having my own experience of the book. And I just had a flash of memory, and I think I know this about you because you wrote about it, uh, Carl, Carl Ove and My Struggle. Um, now, I got, I got through half of the first volume, and I, and I underlined a lot of it, and then I just didn't give a shit. I don't know what happened. So I adore that work, although I've only, I've, I mean only, I've read the first three. I haven't read, I haven't read the second three, and it was a conscious choice because I read the first three... I waited until the third one came out, and then I was going to write about it. So I read the first three sort of, um, I kind of binge read them. Okay. Um, Those are, I can't even fathom binge reading them, because well, even the... I mean, it wasn't binge reading them in like two days, but I mean, I read them kind of back to back to back. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I really, I mean, I, I you know, I, I, first of all, I think they're... I think of those three as three separate related books rather than three parts of one book. And they work differently. The second one's the best, I think, of those, of, those, of those three. But at the end of that process, I made a conscious decision that I was going to wait until, all, until the sixth one had come out and had been translated, and then I was going to read uh, four, five, and six. So that's, I have not read them yet, but the sixth one's just come out um, this fall. So I'm going to, that's my my next big ambitious, but we'll see. I mean, I may or may not finish. Um, I love those books. I particularly love the second um, because I think they, they create a kind of epic of the minor, right? Like the, you know, there are basically, there's nothing epic that happens, but except that they're kind of a, portrayal of consciousness and the books that mean the most to me I've really come I mean I think I always felt this way but now I think I've come to kind of like actually decide this for myself there are books that are really about consciousness about the consciousness of the writer or the well the character the author through the character in a work of fiction or the author well author through the character and work of nonfiction too because the narrative of a work of nonfiction is also a character but the author's expression of consciousness or the author's investigation of consciousness of the state of consciousness because um, that's what we're all engaged in all the time and so Nausgaard spending you know 150 pages or whatever describing how he cleaned out all the bottles from his dead alcoholic <laughs> father's house you know is kind of brilliant in a way, even though it's because it's so not dramatic, uh-huh. and yet he kind of makes the inner life of it really dramatic, you know? And so um, that's what I mostly treasure about those books. I might jump to volume two at some point, maybe in a year or so, and give that a go, because I've heard that before from other people. Oh, volume two. Yeah, I mean, there's the you know the scene that a lot of people talk about, but which I think is really brilliant. You know, it, it opens or right at the very beginning of volume two. There's this you know 60, 70 page account of a four year old's birthday party, um, which is just fucking amazing. I, you know, it's like, I mean, having been to a lot of four year old's birthday parties in my time, <laughs> he really gets just how dreadful it is, and not just for the parents, but like the kids. You know. He takes his four-year-old to this party. She doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want to be there. He's trying to, like, pretend he wants to be there because she's a little antisocial, and he's trying to, like, teach her how to socialize. 
you know, be a good parent. But, you know, she keeps going like, when can we leave? Whatever. And then he's spending the whole time talking to these parents. He has nothing in common with trying to be polite, waiting for the cake, right? You know, that's going to be his payoff is the cake. And then the cake comes out and it's, you know, like gluten-free, sugar-free. And he's like, God, they can't even have a good cake, you know? And there's something so brilliant about the despair of it even though it's meaningless but it's not because so much of our experience I think is stuff that is you know these kind of minor indignities you know but that we take personally in ways you know but that we've been kind of conditioned not to talk about and so he's just laying it all out you know like like they couldn't even get a good cake it's so you know and there's something about like I don't know how to put it I don't want to say it's it's not brave I don't really believe in that as a concept anyway, but it's just, it's so revealing, right, in some way. And that's what I, that's what I go to reading for at this point. That's why, you know, right, that's, that's, I just want to, I'm interested in moments more than I'm interested in, um, I mean, I'm interested in story, but I'm interested in moments. I'm interested in story as like a collection of moments and how do we kind of excavate those moments as deeply as possible. And I think that's what he's doing in, in that and I love watching his interviews. I don't, have you ever had a chance to meet him in an interview? I've never met him. He's someone I would love to love yeah, to yeah. talk to. Yeah, I'd love to talk to him too. But I, then I'd have to read his damn book. Yeah. <laughs> Although you know, you never know. Like I was, you know, I was. I mean, I, when Volman did that long, oh. you know, that giant history of violence, that seven volume history yeah, of yeah, violence that that McSweeney's published, yeah, yeah. you know. So I was going to interview. I I I interviewed him for yeah. that and. Um, and it was a phone interview. So I called him. And I we had talked before. And I called him and I said, um, all right, so before we start, full disclosure, I haven't read the whole book. I haven't read everything. You know, I was like, I've read around in it. I've probably read about 800 pages, something like that. But I haven't read everything. And he goes, nor should you. <laughs> Volman's a trip. I got to interview him. Um, and I was that was one where I was just like, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, oars for Gloria. You know, the, that's where I started with him, and um, so I met him at his hotel. And he's uh, and I was thinking, well, we'll have drinks at the bar. He's like, could we just go back to my room? I'm tired. I'm all sure. So then he goes, I'm gonna get in bed. I'm like, okay. So then I just stood above him while well, I sat beside him as he was laying in bed, tired, and we did the interview there. And that was uh, for drinks with Tony. So I was doing exactly what we're doing now, which was mic to mic. Yeah. No, he's. Um He's a fascinating guy. I love him. I, I like him a lot. And I like the fact that he's so, he's so polite. Yeah. yeah. You know, he's like, a, he's such, it, I mean, it's a weird thing to say about him, given sort of his, his public persona and what he writes about. But he's a really gentle, he's really, he seems like a really gentle soul, you know. And, um, and endlessly fascinating. I was, you know, he, I just this idea, you know, this idea that we, I mean, again, it's, it's, it's not dissimilar, it's dissimilar in certain ways. I mean, I wouldn't call them at all aesthetically dissimilar, but point of view wise, you know, this idea that all we know is our own consciousness, all we know are our own sets of perceptions. We can't tell that person who seems miserable might actually be the happiest person on the planet because we're not inside their, their heart or their head. And so the idea of not taking things for granted, not making those kind of prejudgments we make. We're always, you know, always, we're always walking through the world and noticing things and then making a judgment or creating a story about, okay, I'm going to tell you the story of that person sitting over there. Like, I have no idea who that person sitting over there is, but I will automatically create a story, right? So that, you know, and one of the things that I find fascinating about him is that he's not saying you 
don't do that, but that he's doing it and then he's deconstructing the stories that he's creating or he's trying, you know. And I love that kind of idea of holding both of those um, impulses in his head at the same time. Yeah. I mean, I, I read The Royal Family and then after that I was out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I stopped after a while. I can't remember what I last read. Um, I can't remember the Maybe Europe Central, but um, but I, it's been a while. But I still, I mean, I'd, my, oh no, Imperial. The last one I read was Imperial. Um, because I was I, I was fascinated with um, I am always fascinated with California and water and stuff and Imperial is one of the most interesting books about California water wars I've ever read. Oh wow! But it is also like thirteen hundred pages long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is oh my god! I asked him that. I'm like, well, how do how do you deal with your publishers? And I'm like, well, they just I have to take a, I take an advanced cut. Yeah. So he they he loses a lot of his money yeah, for yeah. that. Yeah, he gives them, you know, because he won't have it cut, which I respect too. Yeah, you know, if you're in that right. if you're in that position, you know, and I think he, you know, some of those books are better than others. Some of them go on and on and on, but you know, when he's on, he's you know he's doing something nobody else. That I haven't seen anybody else do. Yeah. You know. Love the woman. Hey, David Eulen, thank you so much for hanging out, man. Oh, Tony, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony. That was David Eulen. Coming up, we have my interview with Vim Vendors from about 2005. This is the first time I interviewed uh, Vim Vendors. His film... (laughs) I told that telemarketer to go away. Vim Vendors' film is Wings of Desire... Um, that is a new digital restoration that's screening this Sunday at the Egyptian Theater in Los Angeles. Vim Vender says that the print is as beautiful as it was in 1987. Every print ever since is a sixth-generation removed print. Here is my interview with Vim Vendors. We talk about Wings of Desire and other stuff. Thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony. Hi, out there. I'm Vim Vendors. And I'm actually drinking with Tony, believe it or not. No, that was silly. Hi, this is Vim Vanders, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. And I hope you like all the drinks he serves on the radio. So I first found out about um, you when, because I was a huge Nick Cave fan. And so I saw I sought out... What's that? No, wait, Tony. <laughs> I sought out Wings of Desire be- just because of that. Um... So I know that's uh, we're we're talking about uh, twenty minute, twenty years ago or so. But how did you end up um, in touch and casting with like Nick Cave and Crime in the City Solution for Wings of Desire? Well, I already was a fan of Birthday Party, oh, okay. and that's when both bands still were one, and oh. all these guys still were in one band, and and then both. Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds and sorry um, and what was I talking about? Uh, Nick Cave and Crime in the City Solution of course of yeah. course, both Nick and the Bad Seeds and Crime in the City Solution were big underground heroes in Berlin Nick lived in Berlin Nick was grunge before the, that was even coined that phrase and to make a movie in Berlin in 1986 without Nick for me was inconceivable. I saw them play every week. They played oh. in all they played in all sorts of clubs. I knew Nick a little bit. I knew some of the guys in his band. 
I thought Crime and City Solution was just as fabulous a band. And so when I started thinking about a film in Berlin, I had them on the equation from the beginning. And I was really happy that Nick did a song in the film. Crime and City did. I mean, it was fantastic. And one of the most glorious moments in my life when I had all my favorite musicians in front of me. Yeah. And even if we shot them in black and white, and even if they're visited by angels, I mean, the whole power of these bands was right there on the screen. And, and I've remained friends with Nick ever since. Actually, I don't think I work with anybody as often and on as many soundtracks. Nick worked on Far Away So Close. He wrote a song for Till the End of the World. Yeah. I mean, he's he appeared again in Soul of a Man. I mean, only with Bono I've worked more often together in musical terms. So Nick is a really great friend and and one of my favorite singers and it's amazing how much how better and better he gets as a singer and as a songwriter. I now Kit, I was reading um some writings from Kid Congo Powers who was playing guitar at the time with Nick Cave and he was actually on the shoot of uh Wings of Desire that was his first time that he had played with them and he was talking about the um, West Berlin scene at the time as being just electric with uh artists uh do you have fond memories of that time was that uh yeah let's just go with that <laughs> Well in a strange way the whole city was underground I mean the whole musical culture of the city was I mean there were these guys from Australia there were guys from England I mean a lot of people had just come to Berlin to just spend a weekend and had stayed for years because it blew them away and I mean there's a long history of musicians who came to Berlin and, and just stayed there or recorded there I mean Lou Reed and I mean I won't even start getting into it you two were the first after reunification who came to Berlin and recorded the entire Achtung Baby album there. Wow. So Berlin was really thriving, and it was a very special climate in the mid to late 80s. Yeah. I mean, it was a very free place, maybe because it was surrounded and walled in. I mean, you can just do whatever you wanted in Berlin. And nightlife was difficult to survive because you would always stay open stay stay up until early morning and Berlin was the only city I know where you can have at least at the time 24 hour breakfast or you can have your dinner at 6 o'clock in the morning if you wanted to and where there was all, always something happening at night Berlin is really and it still has that feeling Berlin is really a very young and adventurous city and Berlin had a great tradition already in the 20s, and then that got lost, of course, and it found it back in the 80s, and it still survived. Uh, yeah, I, um, Ty, I interviewed Hal Hartley, and he's actually moving his um, production company from New York to Berlin because he's fallen in love with it. I don't know if you've crossed paths with him or... I've seen Hal every now and then, and I know that. And Kit Congo, he just arrived at the time... He was just a newcomer. I'd seen K 
kid earlier because I was a huge fan of Gun Club. Oh, yes, yes. So I had seen, and I would lived in Los Angeles in the early 80s, uh-huh. and I didn't miss a single concert by Gun, Gun Club. So I had seen King play, a uh, kid play, and then it was amazing to see him reappear with Nick and the Bad Seeds. So um, a lot of your films have a spiritual, like, spiritual theme to them. Um, what are your beliefs regarding, uh, like, God and angels and religion? I just uh, uh, you could briefly. <laughs> That's a lot of things to ask in one question. God, angels, and religion. I think you can believe in one without believing in the other. So. Religion, I'm really scared about. I mean, I'm a Christian and I believe in God, but religion is a scary thing, especially in America, because religion is very quickly a business. And the one thing Christ was revolting most against were the religious people of his age. And I still feel today like that. Religion is bad business. And especially if religion and government get mixed up which is basically fundamentalism like in a lot of the Islam world and let's face it in America I'm not so much a fan of religion but I I believe in God and I didn't really believe in angels when I was making Wings of Desire they were more like a metaphor I, th- I thought of them more like the good people we have inside ourselves but that we're not in touch with anymore the good and nice people we would love to be if we, if we would just let us right, right. be as nice and full of goodwill as these angels were. But they were more metaphorical characters, and it was only when the film was finished that I realized that I had gotten big help, I mean, enormous help from somewhere. Uh-huh. And a lot of the film was just an incredible present because I made this film with no script whatsoever. This film was improvised day-to-day basis. And I realized I had some powerful guardian angels working with us. (laughs) Let's say I'm I'm not an angel specialist still, but I bought the big angel dictionary at the time. There's a great dictionary. And it gives you all angels in the entire tradition of the Old Testament, Jewish, I mean, all the names with E-L at the end, that's Kasiel and Damiel, that means angel at the end in Hebraic. So I got a specialized, you had to be a specialist because of that dictionary. Yeah. But spiritually, you see, I know, I met some real angels in real life, uh-huh. and I think sometimes those are the ones I was I really preferred because I could talk to them. Yeah. I mean, I'm not Peter Falk. I can't talk to angels like he does. Yeah. And then again, you know, he's a former, he's an ex-angel, so he he knows their ways. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway. You wanted a brief answer. I already talked too much. Uh, who are some of your favorite writers, novelists? 
Dashiell Hammett for sure. Faulkner. No, everything. Comic McCarthy, I love a lot these days. There's a an American writer, a woman writer. I love very much Louise Edrick. Uh-huh. Probably never heard of her. She's no. fantastic, and you can read each and every one of her books. Louise Edrick. She's half Indian, half German. Believe it or not, huh. or at least her grandfather was German. Yeah, and uh, what Indian, else? Um, Native American. Or yeah. Okay. Native American, uh-huh. and with some German blood. And Paul Auster so, yeah. is one of my favorites. And also a good friend, Dom DeLillo. Peter Carey, he's an Australian writer I like very, very much. And of course, in my own language, there's Peter Hanke. And he's maybe my favorite contemporary because we know each other since we were boys and we sort of had parallel lives. And we worked, I mean, I produced a couple of films of Peter's. He worked on some of mine, provided a couple of scripts. And a novel that I actually made my first picture after novel of Peter's The Goalies Anxiety at the Penalty Kick. So there you have all my favorite writers. And I probably forgot someone will have a sleepless night tonight because I didn't mention her or him. Oh, yeah. My, my, at the f- moment, my favorite writer is Cervantes because I'm just reading oh. for the first time Don Quixote at La Mancha. Oh, yeah. And it's the damnedest book. I mean, this is, if somebody would have told me this is just right now written, read it, I would would have believed it because it's so unbelievably modern. And this is 350 years old. It's extra, extraordinarily funny and complex and contemporary. Right. I mean, it's a hell of a book. And I never read it. I'm just reading it because I read this review in the New York Times that this new translation was a state of the, state of the art as far as Don Quixote was concerned. So I bought it. It's a damn fat book. It's like a thousand pages or something and I'm still reading it but boy that's a pleasure uh, have you seen the Terry Gilliam film where he tried to uh, the the documentary uh, of course there's nothing else to see but the documentary yeah. there's something of La Mancha what is it yeah, yeah Lost in La Mancha Lost in La Mancha yeah. I've seen that of course and I wish Terry could actually go and finish that movie that's one of the films I was really looking forward to yeah. and then it I think Don Quixote brought a lot of bad luck to everybody who's tried to do something about it. There's bad karma around Don Quixote. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I don't know what it is. But it's outrageously funny. Yeah. If you read the book. It's a fat book. Okay. Uh, So we're talking about your film, Don't Come Knocking. Could you give uh, me a brief description of the film for the audience? Well, it's not like anything they've seen. Uh It's a road movie, post-Western family love story, tragic comic farce. So now they know exactly what they're seeing. It's actually about how do you feel when you're 60 and you find out you have kids that you've never met, and how is it when you're 30 and this guy comes waltzing and saying, hey, I'm your dad. It's about both sides of that same story. Uh-huh. Do you feel uh, uh, that either of those characters are related to you personally? <laughs> Luckily enough, not at all. Because I had a dad who was there for me. And 
in a big way. And even when I grew up and was 16 or 18, we had big fights and conflicts, and that was an important part of our lives and, and of my life and of our relationship. So if I only remotely think of what my life would have been without my dad, I'd just get horrified. Yeah. So that's why I wanted to make a film about absent fathers because it's such a heartbreaking thing not to have a father. Um, so Sam Shepard and you worked together on this script. Uh, what was the collaboration process like with him? Great. Yeah. <laughs> good answer. I forgot how good it was because, yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons we didn't work again after Paris, Texas for so long because it was so good. And I know from experience that if something is really right and perfect, don't touch it because you can only ruin it. And that's why we had this pact, and we waited, after all, 20 years. But then 20 years seemed enough of abstinence, and we went at it again and had just as much fun as the first time. And Actually, I think we tried to stretch the experience because we worked on the script for three and a half years. Oh, this time? Okay. Paris, Texas was a year, but this time we stretched it to three and a half. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We wrote it in all sorts of places. I mean, we didn't work for three and a half full years. We met for a week or ten days, and then we let it sit again and meet again two months later, and we wrote in Minnesota, where Sam had his farm at the time, in a cabin in the woods far away from everything. We wrote in Los Angeles, New York. On the road, we even wrote some of it in Calgary because Sam was making a movie in Canada wrote it in Butte, Montana. We wrote it in lots of places, and after three and a half years, it was like a good wine. Yeah. Was Sam already cast in the lead role as Howard as you were writing the script? Not from the beginning. I mean, I had learned from my mistakes because I had asked Sam on my knees to play the lead in Paris, Texas, and he had steadfastly refused it. So, this time I knew better, so I didn't ask him. So, instead, of, we had half a script and never talked about casting, just continued to work on the characters. It's all Sam cares about. So, eventually, I just leafed through our first 60, 70 pages, and, and I said to him, when we finished with this, Sam, I think I'm going to give it first to Jack Nichols, and this would be perfect for Jack. And he continued typing, but he made more mistakes than usually. So <laughs> I, I realized he was pissed, and I, I, I knew I had him. Cool. And what was your reason for choosing uh, the location of Butte, Montana? It's my favorite place, not only in the West. It's my favorite place in America. Oh, wow. And the greatest city on this planet, if you ask me. Uh-huh. Because there's just nothing like it. There is no other city that was once Boomtown. Butte was the biggest city west of the Mississippi in 1900, bigger than San Francisco. And incredibly rich, the hugest copper mine in the world. And then in the 50s, the bottom fell out and Butte was abandoned and is now Uptown Butte basically is a ghost town, only that is not only a few shacks, but 
I mean, there's high-rises, 12-story, brownstone buildings, avenues as big as Broadway, and abandoned. And that's... So it got stuck somewhere in time. You still feel the 20s and 30s. You feel the... You can see the 50s because that's when the city stopped. And it's the most amazing place to shoot in. And, I mean, in the feast, visually, the feast, and I always wanted to shoot there. I know Butte for almost 30 years, but I never had the right story. And this one, as soon as we started writing, I knew this was it. And we wrote it for Butte to measure. We wrote it for these places. Would you ever consider uh, relocating there? If I were a painter, I'd live in, in Butte. Okay. But as I'm not a painter, and I think as I've showed Butte at its best in the film, because I really love the city, I don't think I would live there because I shot on every street corner now. Uh, Mr. Vanders, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for all the drinks, Tony. <laughs>